Hello everybody and welcome to this week's First Take podcast. Uh, my name's Simon King. I'm an executive editor at First Word Pharma Plus. I've got my colleague Michael Flanagan with me all the way from Chicago, where I understand it's extremely snowy and extremely cold at the moment. How are you doing, Michael? You warm enough? Yeah, that's pretty much the gist of it. I'm sitting there and looking at the roof deck of about four feet of snow and it's, you know, two degrees out. But, uh, you know, what are you going to do? It's February in Chicago. I just got to be used to it. So let's uh, let's talk some drugs. Let's crack on. Okay. Well, I think a good place to start, um, like we did last week, and I think we'll we'll probably continue to do for um, for the foreseeable future is, you know, let's let's chat through a few of the kind of the headlines that have happened in terms of, um, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic or more accurately, I guess, where farmers concerned is the industry's response to it. Um, there's been a few things of note that have happened this week. I mean, obviously, you know, at the moment, most stuff is is kind of incremental. Um, on the vaccine front, we heard this week that the um, that the vaccine has been developed by AstraZeneca and the Uni- University of Oxford, which is which is the one that we're kind of predominantly using in the UK. Um, there was a small study in South Africa which kind of inferred that um, it maybe isn't going to be as effective against sort of mild and moderate disease caused by a particular variant, which is thought to have. Um, uh, originated in South uh, South Africa, um, and it was wor- it's worth noting today. Actually, I saw AstraZeneca; they announced their Q4 results today. They they are working on, uh, on on variations of the vaccine to combat these variants, and I think they were kind of suggesting it's going to be kind of six to nine months for the manufacturing to be scaled up, um, which I believe is kind of slightly slower potentially than the the mRNA uh, vaccines, which is. I think you know that might be um, something that that, that that plays out over time, if we have to kind of uh, modify these vaccines. You know the different technologies that are being used. But, but Michael, the, the the thing I kind of really wanted to speak to you about was, we had a bit more news this week about the the neutralizing antibodies that have been developed by some of the the companies um, in the states. And I know that Eli Lilly this week received emergency use authorization for its own cocktail of two of these antibodies. Um, you know, I think these these drugs seem to be kind of pretty impressive, but I know that there's been a lot of um, issues in terms of how they're being used to treat patients. I guess in some respects, they're also sort of playing second fiddle to the vaccine story, aren't they? Yeah, you know, we've sort of been talking about the, the two-track, um, you know, development plans here with the vaccines and with neutralizing antibodies. Neutralizing antibodies seem to come... A little bit ahead and everybody's was excited about them they seem to have really taken a back seat now to vaccines um even though you're right so the, i think eli Lilly reported a 70 percent reduction in uh, hospitalizations and death in in their study with this cocktail so obviously they're they're doing um they're working uh the question is you know how long are they going to be needed you know, um, and so the I think I saw sales projections for Eli Lilly, something in the two billion dollar range for, for 2021 and something a little bit less, but also north of a billion for Regeneron. And I think most of those projected sales are coming in, say, this quarter or maybe this quarter or next quarter. I think the whole plan is that, you know, vaccines are, are supposed to essentially bring a, a sense of normalcy 
back to, to the world, in, in which case these antibodies, you know, will be uh, hopefully an afterthought. Um, but it's interesting, you know, they do seem to work really well. They just, um, you know, have become an afterthought already, which maybe is a good thing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you're right. I guess the other issue is it's the, you know, some of the studies have evaluated these in different settings. So I think maybe there's some some opportunity to use them in places like care homes where there's a kind of a, a high risk factor. But I guess there is also the um, there's the practicality of administering these if they're kind of, you know, they're antibodies, it's it, it, it's injections or infusions or whatever. Um, but it, yeah, it's interesting to kind of, I was looking back at some old sort of analyst notes. And if you look back to kind of early summer of last year, there was quite a few people talking about these antibodies as kind of being a really important sort of bridging strategy, you know, to the vaccines. And, it, you know, in hindsight, obviously, we've been amazingly fortunate that we've, you know, we've got a handful of vaccines now that have, you know, have shown you know, higher than expected efficacy, but then have basically shown it a lot, a lot faster than expected as well. So we, we are in, you know, we are in a very good position. I mean, I guess the the one other thing um, to note before we move on, I think it was maybe very late last week that Johnson and Johnson said that they have um, they've submitted an application in the U.S. Uh, for their single dose vaccine, um, and I think maybe from memory i think later this month is when the fda may well may well grant that emergency approval um but i i i, I kind of got the impression that we're maybe a couple of months away from the the supply of that vaccine really ramping up but it, it does seem like the johnson and johnson um vaccine might be quite a critical one in terms of particularly in the us and you know in terms of speeding up the the vaccination program um, yeah, probably everywhere. You know, the single dose is could be huge, obviously, for, you know, that's that, that lowers the barrier for for access and for, um, you know, efficacy and everything. So hopefully that hopefully that works and hopefully they prove it. And, uh, you know, yeah, things ramp up. Well, absolutely. And actually, on that note, it's worth noting as well that earlier this week, the, um, you know, a group of advisors who work for the, the World Health Organization, they also recommended um use of the AstraZeneca vaccine that we mentioned earlier, they've um, they've recommended it, its use in, in all adults over the age of 18. Um, for those of you not in Europe, there's, there's, there's been a little bit of debate uh, between the UK and the European Union or certain countries in the European Union whether the AstraZeneca vaccine should be used um, in patients aged 65 and over. Um, you know, AstraZeneca has said they, they don't have a huge amount of data in the age cohort, but they're, 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 they're you know, they're, they're confident of the efficacy. But the, the WHO has recommended its use in all adults and perhaps equally as important has 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 uh, recommended this preferred dosing interval of up to 12 weeks, which which is obviously um is is the approach that the government here in the UK has been advocating and has been following and you know we're all very hopeful that we're going to start seeing um the signs of that strategy in in the data that's reported on a daily basis in in the next couple of weeks and hopefully um you know that that will provide um you know some 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 signposts for other countries uh, in terms of using this AstraZeneca vaccine um yeah. 
let's let's move on. Um, quite an interesting story this week. Kind of started to started off last week when we got some some briefing documents from the FDA. Um, basically, the FDA came out and said, um, you know, we're not convinced by uh, yeah. To take a step back, Merck and Co. trying to get U.S. approval for its uh, checkpoint inhibitor Keytruda in early stage triple negative breast cancer. Um, so this kind of this speaking to this broader idea of moving these immunotherapies into earlier stage disease. Um, they've been seeking approval in, I think it was neoadjuvant triple negative breast cancer, but the FDA kind of came out last week and said that the data that Merck has put together, has collated, isn't uh, sufficient enough. And actually some quite interesting comments along the lines of, you know, we, we kind of suggested to Merck that they should maybe pull the filing, but, you know, they, they didn't want to take that action. Um, and then this week, um, a panel of experts convened by the FDA have kind of unanimously agreed with the agency and said, look, the data that's been put forward, which um, I think shows, um, a, a, you know, a, a, an improvement in pathological um, complete response. Um, they've sort of said that that data is not enough. We need to see, um, I think it's event-free survival data obviously in the longer term, hopefully overall survival data. But it's just been quite interesting to see, I think, two things. You know, Merck's sort of strategy so far and its track record on getting Keytruda to market and approval across multiple indications has sort of almost been textbook. So it's quite interesting to see them hit a bit of a challenge. And I'm kind of interested in what bigger picture um is at play here in terms of moving these immunotherapies into earlier stage disease where I think it's going to be harder, isn't it, to sort of comprehensively demonstrate that they are, you know, it's worth patients receiving these therapies, I guess. Right. People are, you know, people are watching probably this study, but also just the general move towards neoadjuvant and adjuvant uh, closely because that is the next big thing as far as you know, the, the next growth area for checkpoint inhibitors, and obviously many billions of dollars in sales are at stake. Um, so this data point is pretty interesting in the sense that it suggests that regulators who have been you know, rather flexible with, with PD-1 uh, and the checkpoint inhibitors in the past, given sort of their track record of success, it suggests they're, they're not gonna, you know, bend over backwards by any means to, to make these available in this earlier stage setting until they see, you know, hard proof that these, these uh, drugs are working and prolonging survival, which it's uh, that that's going to be, you know, that's something that companies will have to take into consideration because in the earlier stage settings that they're working in to get that sort of data, it takes longer. So, you know, it may suggest that uh, the, the bar for getting these drugs into those earlier stages might be just a little bit higher than perhaps some some were expecting. Yeah, and I think the other, a couple of interesting points to sort of provide context for what you've just said with these studies taking longer, is that actually if you look back, you know, maybe over the last five years or so, some of the some of the clinical studies which have resulted in in the approval of these checkpoint inhibitors in metastatic settings actually read out notably faster than, than people were expecting so i think that's kind of on one hand set a bit of a precedent um you know and i think Keytruda is you know you could probably say is 
has been the biggest beneficiary of that um, with, 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 with data reading out faster than expected. And it's, you know, in certain cases, allowing Merck to file Keytruder ahead of competitors, which has obviously helped the, you know, the drug to become the kind of the, the dominant PDL, PD-1 inhibitor. But I think the other factor to note as well is that, you know, if you go back five years, once these checkpoint inhibitors, once the, the PD, PD-1 inhibitors and the PD-L1 inhibitors sort of were successfully brought to market, there was this kind of expectation that we may be entering a kind of a golden era of checkpoint inhibitors. And actually, we haven't really had any other mechanisms kind of successfully reach the market. So that has kind of put, seemingly put this onus on you know, moving these these drugs into uh, into earlier stage disease, and and I think you know if you listen to the experts, there's there's kind of no reason uh, why they won't work. And obviously, we've seen in certain tumor types like melanoma, they obviously do work, and you know, and they work well, and they've already been approved. But I think you know to to to, to reemphasize the point you made, you know, regulators are obviously not going to. Uh, are not going to be too easy on the companies, are they, in this regard with the data? Yep. Um, it just uh, it makes sense. You know, I mean, you add toxicity when you add these another drug on on top of, you know, what you're already doing. So, you know, these patients aren't necessarily the most severely ill patients as well. So, you know, it, it the, the risk benefit uh, calculus is, is different. And so <laughs> um, this may reflect that. I suppose definitely, in, if you're talking neoadjuvant as well, I, you know, I, I guess you can't rule out that someone's going to be essentially cured by having surgery to remove a tumor. And I think, right. I think one of the issues in, I think if I'm reading it right, one of the issues in particular with the the study that Merck was presenting its data from um, is they'd actually evaluated Keytruder as a neoadjuvant therapy um, prior to surgery, and then they'd then administered it to patients after they'd had their tumor surgically removed as well. And I think from memory, when some of the when the data was initially presented at ESMO in 2019, I seem to remember there being some debate uh, with the with the investigators as to you know, what was driving, you know, the, what use was driving the efficacy that was shown. And I guess maybe that has played um, a, a part in the uncertainty that, that the FDA has around the data. But anyway, it's one to watch. Um, Merck's um, going to be um, hopefully providing some more data, I think, in the third quarter from that study, which is the Keynote 522 study. Um, but it, I think, you know, for anyone who's interested in cancer immunotherapy and where the market goes from from here, I think this, you know, tracking how these are going to be used in neoadjuvant and adjuvant disease is going to be a really fascinating thing to watch. Um, we've actually got ASCO GU happening this weekend, and um, you know, on the same subject, uh, one of the one of one of the studies that I think is going to attract a lot of attention is actually uh, is new data showing. Um, Bristol-Myers Squibb's PD-1 inhibitor of Devo um, when, as an adjuvant treatment for um, surgically resected bladder cancer. So this is a perfect example of what we've been talking about. You know, I think the data shows that it was shown to sort of nearly double 
the average length of time that patients lived without disease recurrence. So clearly, you know, it's a kind of, you know, uh, you've got to kind of assess these drugs on a kind of a, a cancer by cancer basis. And, and, and um, Obdivo, to be fair to Bristol-Myers Squibb, is now kind of racking up the, um, it's racking up the, the, the clinically sort of meaningful data in, in a in adjuvant settings, I think it, it's it's already approved in melanoma. I think non-small cell lung cancer is another is another one where it's it's shown um, efficacy in the adjuvant setting. Um, and Michael, I know um, with regard to ASCO GU, you're sort of planning on speaking to a key opinion leader next week just to sort of um, get the, the the kind or kind of build a bit of sense around. Um, the latest state of play in, in the renal cell carcinoma market. Yeah, whereas Abdivo is sort of out ahead in the um, bladder cancer setting, the the renal cancer is, you know, it's a crowded space. So in the especially in this frontline setting where the clear study just read they they uh, put out an abstract with some early data and they will be presenting uh, more detailed results this weekend from this phase three clear study which looks at Keytruda and ASI's Lenvima uh, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor and it's looking at it in the first line um, RCC which is where you know there's all sorts of different combinations including some that involve Keytruda. Um, Keytruda and Pfizer's uh, Inlita uh, is another tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Um, there's Opdivo with um, Cabomedics, another tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And then uh, there's Opdivo and Yervoy, the, the combination of two immuno-oncology drugs. So, you know, there's a lot of different options in this setting. And now Keytruda and ASI are throwing, uh, well, ASI essentially is throwing its hat in the ring with Keytruda and Lenvima. And, you know, it's not clear exactly how this data is going to stack up. It looks like the efficacy is as good, if not maybe a little bit better than some of the other, um, you know, IO slash tyrosine kinase inhibitor combinations, um, but then arguably um, maybe not. So it's better on progression-free survival and then maybe not on overall survival, but there might be a little extra toxicities as well. So it's, it's one of these sort of trade-off situations. And then you got the the IOIO combination with Yervo and Optivo uh, that I think might be sort of seen as a standard um, ideal uh, therapy of choice anyway for these patients because it has that really, really long tail um, that's, you know, a small seg segment of the population gets. So, yeah, we'll be talking to a um, an oncologist to get their their impression of the, the CLEAR study and how the first-line RCC you know, prescribing decisions, um, how they're being made at the moment and, and how they're likely to evolve in the, the coming months and years. Cool. Great stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an area that we've um, we've looked at a lot in the past because, like you said, it is getting it's getting very, very crowded. I mean, it's, it's obviously great news for oncologists and great news for, for, for patients that there's these choices. And, and, and I think, yeah, like you said, this, you know, obviously that distinction between using the the TKI and the immunotherapy or the dual immunotherapy. Um, on, on the issue of, of, of speaking to experts, I know that you spoke earlier this week to um, uh, to a, a rheumatologist about this issue um, that's recently arisen with um, 
with Pfizer's JAK inhibitor, um, Jalyance, um, the, the new safety issues um, that have been uh, disclosed um, concerning, uh, you know, a higher risk of cardiovascular side effects and malignancies versus um, TNF inhibitors, which are obviously another, you know, leading drug class for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. Um, this is something that, you know, hopefully we'll be looking at over the next week or so. Um, just as an aside, we've been sort of surveying um, rheumatologists about this, and we're hoping to um, share some of our findings in the next week in terms of how we think that these safety data may impact the market. We'll hopefully be sort of running through a couple of scenarios um, and, and, and how that may impact use. But what was your kind of um, sense, Michael, of, of, of how this safety data may impact um, that particular drug and the JAK inhibitor sort of class as a whole? Because obviously, you know, other companies and, the, you know, the company that springs to mind is, is AbbVie have got, you know, a huge amount invested in this drug class, which, um, you know, is already worth billions and, and you know, could could get considerably larger over the next couple of years based on you yeah. know, what, what the market's saying. Certainly it was expected to, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll see what this new readout from the so-called oral surveillance study of Zeljan. So it was a long-term safety study um, of Zeljans that was required by FDA at approval because there was, you know, there's question marks about the safety of this drug. And unfortunately, the the overriding sentiment sentiment I got from the rheumatologist, uh, Robert Carriccio at uh, Temple University, he, he was basically disappointed because they're very, very excited about, you know, this whole class of JAK inhibitors. To have an oral drug that is as effective as it is was obviously seen as something that was very exciting um, by both patients um, and prescribers. You know, it was known that JAK inhibitors are sort of they have this cloud of um, safety concerns that have been hanging over them, driven mostly, it has to be said, by, by Zelgians, um, given the, I think it was the thrombotic, you know, signal that, that they came to market with. And now, based on oral surveillance, it looks like they have a clear signal on malignancies and uh, just major adverse cardiovascular events. So, um, you know, this this readout is clearly going to have a, a direct impact on Zelljans. Um, and, you know, he, he, the rheumatologist thinks that there's no way that FDA won't just greatly expand the black box warning on Zelljans' label, which was already pretty big to begin with. Um, the question that he is not sure, so sure about is whether FDA is going to sort of immediately uh, have, make similar changes to the other JAK inhibitors on the market. So there's a Lumiet uh, from Eli Lilly, and the big one, the one sort of that most is expected from at the moment is Rinvoc from AbbVie. Uh, it's, you know, sort of, it's it's got uh, more selectivity than, than Zelljans, which, you know, AbbVie has always talked up as being a differentiator on the safety side. But unfortunately, FDA has, unfortunately for AbbVie, you know, FDA so far has treated all the jacks sort of similarly. You know, it's sort of seen them all in the same, um, put them all in the same boat. It gave them all the black box warning, the same black box warning. So he's wondering whether FDA is going to immediately 
expand the, the black box warnings for all these drugs, or maybe they could give these companies some time and say, okay, well, demonstrate to us, do the studies, start them immediately, uh, and show us that these drugs are different than Zelljans. He's not, you know, he was on the fence about what he thinks FDA will do. Uh, he's hoping that they don't expand the black box warning on, you know, non-Zelljans jack inhibitors because, um, you know, he thinks that these drugs are, are really useful. Obviously, there's risks. There's risks with every with every drug. There's risks with their competitors, you know, TNF inhibitors and, and the other cytokine, um, you know, targeting agents, uh, biologics. There's there's risks with all these. So it just needs to be a, a conversation with patients. But yes, you know, this this could have a real impact on the on the Jack class. Um, unfortunately, I think the way I said it in the, in the story was that they may now sort of be looked at as guilty until proven innocent, unfortunately, given given the Zelgen's data. Um, and another interesting question, and it'll get to something that I think you are, are working on, is whether this will in fact in, uh, indirectly uh, impact the, the so-called Tick 2 class, which Bristol Myers is at the forefront of. Um, you know, are you, is that something you guys are looking into right now? Yeah, well, it's something that we, we've considered, um, because, uh, you know, key opinion leaders who, uh, who we've spoken to in the past have, have raised this same issue, um, which is the, uh, the TIC2 class, you know, Bristol-Myers-Squibb is developing a drug called Ducravacitinib um for moderate to severe psoriasis um you know speaking to key opinion leaders in the psoriasis space we've had exactly the same uh same message essentially which is uh yes there's an association um because uh, me mechanistically i think there's a there's a you know that they're, they're in the same kind of area I'm probably explaining this really, really badly from a kind of scientific perspective. I, I, I think my kind of my issue would be is how much, particularly with this Bristol Myers Squibb drug, the, the Tick Two drug, is how much that concern translates from key opinion leaders to your your kind of regular dermatologist who's likely to be the prescriber. Um, uh, you know, Bristol Myers Squibb has, you know, a, 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 as you would expect, you know, they they haven't really encountered any significant safety concerns. Um, and when they've been asked about this in the past, they they they've downplayed the association with with the Jack mechanism. Um, I think, you know, to kind of sort of widen the scope of what we're talking about slightly, you know. We, We've done some, you know, we polled some dermatologists this week, actually, to ask them about about the potential of this drug. Um, to give you a bit of background or to give the listeners a bit of background, you know, psoriasis is increasingly dominated by, you know, these kind of high efficacy biologic therapies. But there's one um, oral drug, which is Amgen's Atesla, um, which is known to be less efficacious, but is, you know, is safe and is the only, you know, psoriasis treatment that's that's available, you know, as a tablet. It's a twice daily tablet. And, and you know, it's it's racked up some pretty impressive sales on the strength of that profile. Um, I think it's over two billion dollars last year. 
I mean, Amgen acquired a Tesla from Celgene um, a couple of years ago for I think it was about $13 billion. Um, you know, this isn't a small amount of money. Um, and Amgen has has got aspirations of kind of, you know, expanding the the kind of the commercial positioning by sort of pr- selling selling more of it outside of the US. It seems to be the US market where it's used, you know, the vast majority of use occurs. And hopefully, um, you know, pushing it more into kind of moderate, moderate, um, you know, severity psoriasis rather than the, the, the kind of moderate to severe market. Um, to go back to the to the to the tick two inhibitor, um, what we were basically asking dermatologists this week is, you know, if the efficacy that we see in the phase three studies for the BMS drug is is kind of not too dissimilar to what we saw in in the earlier phase two studies, you know, how is this likely to be used? And I think in the US, where a Tesla is kind of built up uh, a kind of a, a, an established place in the market. I think the tick two inhibitor could could quite easily, based on the feedback that we've seen, you know, assume a lot of market share quite quickly. Um, so I certainly think, from Bristol Myers Squibb's perspective, you know, this is a this is going to be an important launch. Um, we're going to get some detailed phase three data in April, I believe, which will be the first detailed results we've seen. Um, the things that will be key to watch out for, I think, in the phase two studies. I think uh, I think the drug was showing that between 66 and 75 percent of patients treated achieved a, a PASI 75 score at 12 weeks. Um, I think when the phase three data is presented, you know, people will be looking to see to what extent does that drop. Um, and I think there are some reasons with the study design to think that that won't drop maybe too much maybe not too much below 60 percent which would which would mean that it looks pretty impressive versus a tesla but to go back to your original point michael i think people are going to be looking at the safety data to see you know is there anything in it that basically is a red flag about this potential association with the jack inhibitor class um but my just my gut feel at the moment is 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 going to be a case of you know does that translate from a concern that KOLs have to a concern that dermatologists have? But obviously, you know, frontline dermatologists are influenced by what what the key opinion leaders are saying. So, I, I think you know there's a few different strands to that story, um, but I I agree. You know these these are both massive or certainly in the case of the TIC2, potentially massive um, drug classes. And at the moment, I think the, the safety data that, that we've seen for, for Joeyance is, is really casting a, a shadow. Um, and it's going to take a bit of time to see what the kind of impact is, isn't it? Yep, pretty much. You know, a lot a lot is expected of the JAK inhibitors. A lot is expected of the TIC2 um, inhibitors. You know, this one from Bristol-Myers. Um, it, I, you know, I think the the fact that Bristol Myers um, took it on from Celgene and sold to Tesla shows, you know, how much uh, you know promise they see with it. Um, and no Tesla, the fact that this drug, who when you talk to doctors and they're like, it's just not a very active drug, it's just not that good, and yet it's selling as much as it is, it shows just how important you know these oral pills can be. 
um, if they if they show any kind of efficacy. So the fact these tick two, uh, the uh, the one from Bristol Myers is showing you know upwards of seventy percent efficacy. I mean that could be a real game changer. But as you said, there's this cloud that's now hanging over it, and you know it probably was to a certain extent already because tick two is a member of the Jack family. That's why when you say Jack inhibitors, like it's hard not to um, loop tick two in into with that. But um, you know it's a very specific target within that family, and so obviously it's a it'll be a big deal that uh, Bristol Myers proves that uh, it doesn't come with the the same sorts of safety uh, questions that now is hanging ever lower <laughs> over the the rest of the jack uh, inhibitor class i think the um i think the important thing to note that that the kols have said um you know to to my point that i think in terms of in terms of the tick 2 drug sort of being able to compete with a tesla i think that is that's a definite possibility um i think it's interesting to note that when you speak to experts um you know they and i guess there's a I guess there's a, an element of truth with this with the with, with the jack inhibitors as well you know the biologics that they're competing with are so well um you know established and 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 and, and the physicians have so much experience using them and managing the side effects you know one of the one of the questions we asked dermatologists this week is you know do you think it, you know if this data for ducrevastatinib continues to impress you know, how do you see it as a potential, you know, agent that you're going to switch patients away from biologics, you know, to? And they were definitely a lot less enthusiastic about that. So whilst I would say that this is potentially a really big opportunity for BMS, I think, you know, the data that we've got, the feedback from physicians certainly indicates that it's going to be a case of piggybacking possibly on on the market that a Tesla has kind of created for an oral drug and, 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 and the aim, I guess, for Bristol Myers Squibb will be to kind of sort of improve on that and take the share away from it. But it will, it will certainly be a, an interesting market to watch. Um, yeah. And data coming in April, as you said. Coming in April. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the nearer term, as we mentioned earlier, um, we've got the ASCO GU conference happening this weekend. We'll be um, keeping an eye on all the stuff that's happening there and, um, you know, keep an eye out for any analysis of, of the key stories. And as I mentioned, hopefully um, in the next week, we'll be presenting and publishing some stuff um, about the potential impact of this safety data on the jack inhibitors, which I think will be really um, interesting to, to keep an eye out for. Anyway, um, stay safe, everyone listening, and um, enjoy the weekend. Cheers, Michael. Cheers. Cheers.